Hello and welcome to the Judah Way of Life. Today I'm joined by Alex Haker. Hello Alex, how are you? Hey David, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. No, no, it's uh, my pleasure. Firstly, I'd like to start off with just giving you the chance to introduce yourself and you know give the story of how you got started in Judo and how we've traveled to where we're at today. Yeah, yeah, as you said, uh, I, I my name is Alex Hecker, but it wasn't always uh, Hecker. It was Ludicke before. So I, I've i been told I've, I've been a very modern man to change my last name to my wife's and her name is Katerina Hecker. And we moved to Australia just recently, like about six months ago. But she's representing Australia since 2014. But we're obviously both German and we've been both born, born and raised in Hamburg, Germany. A lot of people know it from one of the bigger tournaments. And this is actually where I started my judo career as well, when I was six years old. Not much in, in, in the favor of my mom. She didn't like me starting, starting judo when I was six, but um, I, it, it's actually a funny story because she, she said, no, it's too violent, whatever. And I got to spend two nights with my grandparents every week because my mom worked shift. And I convinced my grandpa to take me to a local judo club when I was six years old secretly for, for I guess, six weeks. And then he really asked me, so if you really like it, I think we need to tell your mom at this point. And we did. And she was kind of, okay, you can keep doing it. But I think she, she taught my uh, grandpa to pay my club fees until I'm 18. And <laughs> he did that. So he really got me started with judo, to be honest. So I've been to Hamburg and trained there um, on the, the senior training camps. Um, but obviously the camp isn't a good representative uh, of what the, the judo's like in the city uh, on a normal day. So what, what, what is the judo like in Hamburg? Yeah, so um, it's, it's a two million uh, people city in, in, in the north of Germany. So it's a pretty big, it's second biggest city in Germany. So obviously there are a number of judo clubs all over the all over the place it's 65 judo clubs but if we speak about more engaged and more competitive judo clubs you would probably say there are 10 to 12 that put the kids into competitions regularly like have cadets even going and senior groups going going different places and maybe even participate in a in a senior league system that we that we have in germany and um, i used to um, run one of the biggest or the biggest club in Hamburg for 12 years. I was head of the club of uh, a little club called Eilbeck, which is a multi-sports club. And judo is one of the biggest um, streams in the, in the multi-sports club. So this is where I did judo from when I was about 16. And when I moved into Hamburg city center to train with this club. What is the, the system like for uh, a a judoka in Germany because as an outsider you know, I've, I've trained in Germany a lot over the years and competed there uh, and it always seemed to be very well managed is that the case uh I I would say yes and no because um Germany is divided into 16 parts our states and um, usually the states have kind of a state selection squad or even full-time or part-time employed state coaches. And therefore, I would say actually from a cadet age or just below cadet age, it's usually managed quite well because just there are people that do judo full-time. 
on a on a club basis i would say it's pretty average to everywhere else in the world there are people that actually care a little bit more or make make their living from judo and there are people that actually just do it for fun and being a volunteer and trying to pass on as much judo knowledge as they as they can and that's good so it's uh, very different but i would actually say in a high performance way it's pretty well managed from cadet just just before cadet age i guess so you mentioned you were you you coerced your grandpa into taking you to judo and um, <laughs> at a young age, like six is quite a young age. Um, I think I started at six originally and hated it after a month. Uh, what was it about the sport that kept you interested and kept you uh, going all the way through? Yeah, I so from the start to keep with judo, it was fun. I, I had a great group of people that started with me, um, so it was really fun to begin with. And I was always uh, a very small kid. I think my first judo tournament even was like under 21 or 24 kilos. So like I was quite little. And I kind of liked the sense of empowerment that came with judo for myself. So that that kept me going in the, in the first place. I found it super cool. When I saw it on TV in 1990, I was like, wow, this is, this is magic. Let's, let's go and do that. So that kind of hooked me in the first place. But then later, as I progressed through the ranks, and obviously there are times I was never part of, of the German national team or anything. So it would have been easy for me to drop out at, at different times throughout my, my judo journey. But um, I always kind of kept going with judo because it was my safe place. Like whatever happened in, in, in my private life, I could go to judo. And when it's Hajime, it's Hajime. Like everybody knows what to do then and it kind of saved me a couple of times. And also when I started to coach, that was a massive change. And that kind of got me hooked the second time around. And then it naturally flow into me being head of the club and then later on being full-time employed in different roles in the, in the German system and then moving on to, to other countries as well. What roles were you, do you take up in the German system? Yeah, so... When I started, I was just a, just a club coach in the club I mentioned to you in Hamburg Eilbeck. And um, that was, uh, I was, I was uh, assistant coach to my former coach, Slavko Tekic, who is one of the best coaches in Germany, I would say. Um, and we, we built the club pretty, pretty successful in such a short amount of time. Like he was, he was, a, he's a magician on the mat and I um, took over to organize the club, be head of judo for the club and help him with his coaching duties and naturally evolved as a coach myself. And um, we have a full-time school program in Hamburg. Uh, so I was shortly after that, I was helping in the, in the sports school in the morning to train um, seventh and eighth grade judo in the morning and then progressed to be one of the state coaches for the junior women I think, and then took over the women's program from there and then became technical director of the, of the state federation as well before I moved on to be a national coach in Luxembourg and then came here straight after that. And being a coach in the... So you've been, been a coach in like three different countries? Yes. How, how have you found that transition uh, in terms of maybe the culture of the sport in those countries? Is, is that the judo in Luxembourg... Or like how it's approached very different to 
Germany? So there's not a drastic change, I would say, when it comes uh, from German to Luxembourg, because they share a border. Um, Luxembourg, they they do speak German over there, as, as they do speak French over there. So it's not very different from a cultural perspective, but the, the country itself is relatively well situated, I'd say. So like there's not an urge to to go and do sports and do well in sports because that's pretty much life is good over there. Kids have the possibility to study what they want. There's a very high standard of social security there. So I, I think it's a harder environment to have a high performance system up and running. But other than that, we were able to drive to, to Cologne for, for training every week. We were able to drive to Strasbourg in France every week. So that's what we did. Um, I would only say the only difference there is like it's less people. So you actually have to retain the people we have. You can't just say, hey, here's the next guy. Here's the next uh, girl to, to go and have a crack at it. It's you find a couple of people and you have to make it work. But I, I don't say that's much different to even Australia. Yeah, I, I remember as um, so I, I had the bulk of my competitive career. I was by 81 kilos. And you know, I'm not ashamed to say that when I looked at my draw before a competition, there's a I know there's a few Germans that I would have some um, like real problems with. Uh, so I was around the time when the Maresh was coming through. Um, I fought him at the uh, Junior European Championships um, and a couple of times at other competitions in the German Open. There's another German boy as well. I think it was called Guest. Mm-hmm. Robert Guest from Leipzig. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I fought those boys a couple of times and, you know, if I saw, those, saw them in my quarter, I was like, right, okay. I'm going to have a hard time to, you know, push through with these boys. But if I had someone from Luxembourg, I didn't, I didn't think the same. And I'm sure other people thought that of me as well. They saw my name on the draw and they were like, no, nope, we've got an easy run here. But, you know, it's, um, there's definitely a, a perception that the, the players from Luxembourg wasn't as, weren't anywhere near as good as, say, someone, one of the boys from Germany. Yeah. Like you said, the, the depth in the German system is actually pretty, pretty good. And obviously in the middleweight classes, it's probably even, even harder to, to get to the top in Germany. As, as you would imagine, it is the same in France or, or bigger nations. So yeah, it's, it's true that those smaller nations for them, it's a little bit harder to be perceived like uh, in the same way, but my approach to, to finding a smaller setting, a smaller judo setting was like, okay, if we get, the right people out at the right time, we can change that perception. And so when I was there, I found one of one of the one of the boys over there. He he was instantly just following everything I said. And he was the first male then to win a European Cup medal for Luxembourg ever. And as a junior, I put him into senior world championships in 2019 in Tokyo. And he he won three rounds. So I was pretty impressed with him. And I think there's another girl in 63. In the juniors, she came back from an ACL injury and then won a medal at the Belgian Open, which is quite hard as well. So they have great individuals. They just have to make it work for them. And I passed um, I passed on the role to, to another fellow coach, or not passed on, but I, I, I advised somebody to maybe sign, sign up for, for an interview with the federation, and he got the job. And I think um, that's, that's great if people keep continuing kind of the same ideas in, in an athlete's development than the previous coach did. 
Now, without giving away too many of your secrets as a coach, um, you said there there's this athlete in particular that did well at the, the World Championships. Um, he listened to you. What, what, was he, what was he listening to? What were you telling him? Obviously, he's like, everyone's different, but he kind of, I think he, he, he took the interest in him as kind of a compliment and just went from there trying to, to do everything in his power to be the best version of himself. So he was a very tall and lanky kind of fighter. Very annoying. If I had to fight him, I would hate it. But um, <laughs> we, managed, we managed to build him that way. I've been described in the same way. <laughs> lanky and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I think he just took the advice of training the right things at the right time, not being beaten down mentally if things don't go his way, just to always pick himself up and train hard. And he, yeah, I think also he had the privilege in um, having my wife as a, as a training partner in the same training group and just seeing how professional she was. It made him professional really quickly because he's like, okay, if she's, if she's training this amount of hours, if she's training this and that, I think I should just do it. So I think he just, took the advice but also was like looking carefully what what people that were already better than him achieving more than him doing around him i've had this conversation with, with a few people because um, especially out here as, as i'm sure you'll also be aware of there's i think sometimes a lack of perspective because if not people haven't been exposed to the harder training so in from a young age, I was you know, I went to Bremen. I think at the age of thirteen, I got like a real real wake up call in terms of what like hard judo looks like, right? Yeah. Um, and people don't you know don't get that opportunity, um, especially say like you know we can just talk about Australia um, later on. But can you just go into what you know, what you mean there by hard training? You know, what does hard training look like to you? So I think sometimes people don't quite understand what that means, and they think they're training hard, but in actual reality, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually, that's a, that's a very good thing to describe because a lot of people actually do think they train hard while they, while they are actually not training hard in what we mean hard. Um, for me, it's not that you, that you push all the weights around or run for four hours and hours. It's how hard you can try in the judo to get systematically better and not just come away with some lucky odds and ends somewhere and not get frustrated by the system not working out straight away, not getting frustrated by more physical players beating you at the time when you're just not physical enough, not to be suki about every small injury, not to be, yeah, just not to be negative about things rather than finding opportunities to, to stay engaged and to always want to see more and push more. That's kind of the mentality I would I would describe it. So it's it's not necessarily just going to Japan and and try for three weeks to survive over there. That doesn't necessarily make you better. And what kind of age do you think is important to really be tapping into that mentality? Maybe you know as a coach, bringing that or you know exposing your athlete to that kind of way of thinking. I think uh, around puberty when people actually build their their personality because I feel like yes before there's a certain age before where kids would do everything the coach say anyway and maybe not even think about it but just take it as a given I think it's really it will be very influential once 
once athletes start to think for themselves where this kind of experiences need to be happening on a on a more frequent basis i i, I would say like around building their own personality so puberty time more or less and this is this is quite a common i've asked this question quite a few people uh, actually on the podcast do you think every athlete has the potential to tap into that mentality and then based on their sort of either their coach or their exposure they either do or they don't or do you think some people just have it and some people don't uh, I would say it's definitely something you can pick up and learn. Um, and I feel if there are people around you that already behave that way and, and, and train that way and, and do everything, it's definitely easier, easier to tag along for a time until it's kind of becomes your own mentality. But I would say it's possible to have this mentality trained and instilled in people but I've also seen people where it didn't work out. But I would say the majority of the people could probably get there. That's 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 the feeling I have from 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 the last twenty years, I guess. And I'd like to talk a bit more about your your current coaching position. So with uh, Kathleen, you were you said you stayed in. She's been representing Australia since two thousand and fourteen. You said, but you were initially based in Germany. Yeah, that's that's correct. How long have you been Kathleen's uh, coach? Mm, she so I think we started to work together from 2012 ish she finished high school in Germany and then went on to do uh, a travel and work here in Australia like a lot of people do but um, the difference was she was she is an actual Aussie um, with her dad being born here so it was easier for her to come here and just um, travel and work around Australia but uh, she didn't do judo for a whole year we kind of got in contact just a couple of weeks before she left to be in Australia and to have her kind of a gap year. And she didn't do judo at all over here when she was here in 2011, 2012. But uh, when she came back, I was, I was taking over the, the junior women's squad in the state. She was, she was just getting out of uh, junior. She, I think she was a second year senior. And then she, she asked me if she could join my training group. Um, and she was from a different club in Hamburg, smaller club, which never was a problem because we have kind of a semi-centralized system in the state. So we were trained together on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays anyway, in in kind of a nation, uh, in, in kind of a, a national center, it's called in the end. So therefore, that wasn't wasn't a problem. But that's the time we started to work together, and I was starting to coach her. But she came back. Let's uh, let's phrase it nicely: not very fit. No, I can uh, I can relate to that. When I um <laughs> I came to Australia for one month as well. I did Japan, Australia in 2012. This is and uh, went to China. So I did three months away after the uh, 2012 Olympics, and that was that was my breaking point. I came back and I said I was 81s before that. Uh, I did three months away, so one month in Australia eating steak pies. Uh, I was doing judo, but I was having a good time as well. Uh, and I got back from my trip, and I just said to my coach, I was like, I'm not doing 81s ever again. That was it. So I can uh, <laughs> I can relate to the um, yeah the uh, the lack of conditioning from Australia. <laughs> yeah, she she actually went as a fifty seven uh, competitor. She was very skinny at that time, and then she came to Australia, but came back to be a sixty three after after all. So she 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 never competed back in fifty seven, which wasn't probably it. It wasn't a natural for her female body to be fifty seven, and after all, anyway. And it's fine. She, she started to train with us. 
she was i think she was crying in training for three months because it was just physically hard for her and uh, yeah at that point in time nobody actually said hey why don't you try to be an international competitor that wasn't just the case at that time she was just training to get back into judo do a couple of uh, regional competitions maybe fight the nationals if she would qualify and that's what we did and that's how it all started and we had a couple of good girls um in the training group that she kind of be friends with straight away uh, nike nordmeyer she had a couple of world cup medals for 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 germany in the 52s and miriam butkerite she's still around in the in the 70s just made out on, on olympic qualification for 2020 and uh, katarina and some other girls that uh, fought our bundesliga team we have a team sister league system in germany so there was quite a quite a big group of girls that all trained together and i think that was very helpful in in her coming back to the sport and then obviously going to different competitions because everyone else did kind of can we just go back to um you mentioned that when she came back uh the, you know the training was quite physical and the first three months, you know, she had a tough time. Uh, what, what what were your training sessions like? What was like a normal session structured? Yeah, so so obviously, like uh, every place, we would do judo every every evening, and then it was conditioning in the morning. So not really special or different from other places. I would say you just try and train every, judo every night, and at when at a stage where you don't know that you're actually trying to be an international competitor, you would do morning sessions sometimes, but not regularly until you really decide that's what you want to do. So our our training base was always going to be. Uh, SNC in the morning and judo in the evening and that's for everyone so it didn't really change it's more like how often you show up and not what times you would train so consistency is key you would say consistency is key like for sure if if, if there's anything I would preach is that yes yeah I think that's uh, something that's o- overlooked um, quite a lot is just how important just turning up to training is you know, I've the uh, I've had a few conversations sometimes where you know oh, I'm tired or you know like I don't feel like it and I, I'm like so <laughs> training's at seven like I'll see you there um, they sort of uh, look at you like you're an idiot um, but yeah it's uh, I think um, I think quite a lot of the time people view it still have that mental like hobbyist mentality like they say they want to be an elite athlete but they're approaching it from a the viewpoint of a hobbyist rather than from the, the viewpoint of it as a, you know, you're not always going to enjoy it, but you've just got to keep turning up. I think it kind of, most of the days you do it for passion and then there are the days when it becomes work. And that's fair enough um, if you just have to kind of schlep yourself into a session. That's, that's, that's okay for me because I think also coaches enjoy that job most of the days, but even the days they don't enjoy it, they still turn up. Yeah, and I think it's those people that like you said just turn up, even if even when they don't really want to, they turn up, they put the hour in or the hours, and you know they keep pushing on. Yeah, and I feel like uh, over the years of a professional athlete, that becomes either either you can do that and you enjoy this even, or you don't. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, I I always tell the guys it's like they work on themselves, which is the greatest project they can ever work on. Like frankly, there's there's no other time in life where people where people let you work on yourself. If you're in a corporate role, you you do your job for a corporation, for people, for shareholders, for I don't know whom. 
but this time you got to spend time on yourself and if you're lucky you're even you're even funded for it or whatever you are yeah something i try to appreciate it as an athlete like you say sometimes you just don't quite realize until you maybe move on and then you gain that perspective and you look back and you're like, oh, no, those those years as a full-time athlete were pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I did try to appreciate it like, when I was training. Even if even those mornings where I woke up, in that uh, we, I used to live in a tin shed at the back of the judo club. Maybe in the winter, and it'd be cold. And you say, oh, not this again. But then you get on the mat, you get warmed up, you start rolling around, and you're like, okay, cool, we're good. It's all right. <laughs> and when you when you look back today, you probably appreciate it even more, I guess. Is that the case? Yeah, I do. Um, and like for myself right now, not to uh, you know take over the conversation, but like for myself right now, um, you know, I've sort of I, I'm not training full time as an athlete, but you know, I've pretty much gone back to my life is just about judo. And like you say, my life, I've created at this minute in time, I'm doing what I want for me type of thing. So in terms of like I'm coaching, I love coaching, I love giving back, um, and I'm probably spending more time on the mat now than I did as a full time athlete. You know, I'm doing like six, eight hours of coaching a day sometimes, if not more. Like I never spent eight hours on a mat really when I was an athlete. I might have spent eight hours training throughout the day, but not all judo. And, you know, being able to have conversations like this and, you know, like you say, that that growth will be able to work on myself. It is, uh, I've, I've sort of regressed back to that position, but in a sort of different mentality. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's kind of my my story as well because I'm I feel pretty lucky that I can still do judo in in different ways. I'm I'm coaching now. I'm not being an athlete myself, but I feel still I live the life I choose to live, and nobody forced that onto me. So I feel kind of in the same situation, lucky enough to do something that I would do even if nobody would pay me. Why did you end up moving, deciding to move to Australia instead of continuing to train and live in Germany? Yeah, obviously, there's, uh, it's an exciting time to be in Australia at the moment because the Olympics 2032 is in, in 10 years' time on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Brisbane area. And those, like, it's just a massive push for sports in Australia overall. Um, that's one thing. But the, the, the thing that caught us the most was um, there's an NPC, like a national performance center being set up by Judo Australia and Combat Aus at the moment. So I think it's the first time that people actually come and gather in one place and try to train as one training group. And that's, that's very exciting. And we found that is probably the best environment for Katarina to do one more Olympic cycle rather than me going for another job in even if it was in Germany, she is not going to be perceived as a German athlete anymore. She she's an Australian trying to beat all the Germans. So it would always be the fifth wheel on a car, kind of. And that was the situation in, in most places we were. So she followed me around to Luxembourg to for me to be able to work that position over there. And it kind of this is my way um, of doing the same thing for her now. And are you in are you enjoying it here in Australia? Massive, massive. I do enjoy it because people are very friendly. I, to, to be fair, uh, the weather was uh, was advertised differently. We are in Melbourne. Melbourne's Melbourne is slightly different. I think I'd I'd be better in Melbourne coming from the north of England. I think the cold and the rain. Yeah, I, I think the weather over here is quite what it is in Hamburg. But I tried to leave that behind. So yeah, 
but for the moment for the moment we're okay and and we really enjoy it because we came to melbourne obviously knowing a lot of people uh here before we we came here so we we've been helped by everyone by by maria peckley by daniel kelly by everyone uh from the like people from from all thoughts of uh judo ways that i came in here uh the whole national team everybody helps each other out all the time moving furniture or w- whatever needs to happen eh? so yeah no it's really good and we really enjoy ourselves here and how have you found the or have you found any differences in the the approach to training here versus maybe like germany or luxembourg in the new npc in the new national performance center it's not that different because it's already on a very high level i would say i think it's more the the states how they manage their performance pathways and the clubs how they function and train and what they do i think at the at the highest level it's not very different but just below that it becomes it becomes different and and for me somewhat difficult to understand even sometimes a little bit in what ways so and i don't know i think that's the same in in england and great britain but it obviously is the same for continental europe usually we have randori nights on a tuesday and thursday nights so people would just click themselves together and and do massive randori session on tuesdays and thursdays wherever from whatever club you are you find yourself in the next uh, center and you probably have i don't know 40 50 60 athletes in all different weight categories that trying to do the same thing and they all want to train together and they just go there for their randori and over here that's not the case i've i've learned that state training is kind of the thing that they do but it's only on half a year until nationals and then not for the other half year and people look at it more as a as a duty to go to these uh, state training sessions rather than opportunities and that's something that uh, just is very cultural different from where I came from. So it's hard to wrap my head around the concept a little bit. Yeah, and no, I, I would agree with that from my, my experience. I remember being invited to, to my area for the squad when I think I was maybe 11 or 12 um, and I got invited to join the Northwest team. Uh, so the Northwest of England, you know, and I went and I got absolutely flogged <laughs> by all the other players, you know, and the, but it was, I was like, I felt honored to be there. I felt honored to be there getting yes. beaten up, Yes, <laughs> you know, and it was, and I loved it, you know, we, and then we'd have the same, you know, we'd have our regional squad every week. Um, we'd all just turn up and, you know, just do Randori and then we'd have our training camps as well, you know, maybe once a month or we'd have a, a sort of regional training camp. And then, yeah, but it was, you know, like we, everyone was there and everyone wanted to sort of train and fight and, you know, everyone was trying to get onto sort of the national team. But it does have a, like you say, it's like a, an obligation feel sometimes here with some of the athletes rather than a, like them being happy to be there to want to train because they want to push on because they want to get selected. What, uh, what, is, what is your spin on it? Why, why do you think it is that different? Because... I know it's a conversation that, that we're having about how I moved here and, and everything, but I find it interesting to to think what might be the reason for it so being so different in perception, at least. Well, I think that's, I think there's that lack of awareness. And from a young age, I was exposed to... So, that, yes, I say I was invited to the Northwest team when I was um, young, uh, and then there was a, a large depth of athletes 
from that age group all the way through to sort of um, under 18s. And so, you know, I was exposed to like a hard, hard level of training. Uh, and those first couple of years were really tough. Um, and then at 12, I went to my first competition in Sweden um, overseas. And again, it was like 600 kids and it was a, a wake up call. Um, and then the year after that, I went to Bremen. And as you know, what Bremen's like, it's, uh, it's a tough one. Again, another 600 kids, but they're, they're tougher kids. <laughs> and they're from some of the, the tougher countries. You know, it's a large sort of, Russian and Kazakhstan uh, contingency that go, um, as well as the other Europe, uh, Eastern European countries, and you just get exposed to these like, very, very tough kids. Um, and that was from sort of like 12, 11, 12, 13, you know, you keep leveling up. So by the time you're sort of a late teenager and you, you're on the junior team, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's, it's like not that hard where I don't think they get that exposure. And it's difficult, I think, for Australia because they are so far away, but you know, I know, I know players who made the effort, you know, the Cats boys. I first met the Nathan and Josh Cats um, in, in Camberley Judo Club in England. Right? And they were there for Christmas every year when they were at, um, at high school. <laughs> it's a horrible place to be for Christmas. Right? You know, but like, you know, so players will do it. It, it. It's an excuse for people, but the people that want to do it will do it. And I, so for me, I think it's just that lack of exposure to what it's really like and there's potentially an element of big fish, small pond syndrome. Yeah. And they don't quite realize, like, like we said at the beginning of the conversation, don't quite realize what hard training actually looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same. So I think you describe it pretty good, but you also said that individuals will always find a way if they, if they wanted to, but I feel like now it's kind of everybody's, obligation in in australia to go and search for these opportunities and obviously judo australia's duty to introduce the kids at at an age where they can still see oh this is what it really is we i think we need to level up we need to do more we need to train smarter there are holes in my judo i need to fix those holes to just get them out and and have them have these experiences that made them make them realize that they have to kind of level up as you said that's i think that's our job like our job as coaches yeah whatever level we are at that's our job to to always look for the next opportunity for the kids to level up i guess yeah and i think that's that uh, for my from what i can see from the outside that seems to be uh, what's happening at the minute uh, i can know there's a team in europe at the minute a cadet team, you know, training on the training camp in Poland and then off to Portugal. And obviously the team went out to the Pan Pacific Championships. So, you know, just just the, the, the actual experience of having to get on a plane and travel to the other side of the world and, you know, try and get over jet lag and perform. And again, in a, in a vastly different country with different culture, different food. Um, so it's all part of the experience, right? It's not just people just think it's just going somewhere and doing some judo against some different people, but it's it's everything else that goes into it and building that. Correct. Because it's in a performance setting, it's not on a, hey, we go on a holiday trip and just have, try to have a good time. It's like you go on a plane to go to the other end of the world to perform over there. And, and I think that's part of being a professional later on is to learn that, that even if you fly overseas and you might be jet lagged and whatever, the food is not to your, to your liking, you'd still have to perform and find your ways to perform. And I think that's, that's part of growing up as a, as a judo athlete that you being exposed to that and, and kind of master it. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think you said at the beginning in terms of um, 
building that mentality uh, during when um, the, the athlete's going through puberty and the, you know, they're building their personality. It's that, I think that's when that exposure, I agree with what you said, that's when that exposure to, to those stresses should happen. And I think sometimes some of the athletes, uh, you know, they, they don't get to be exposed to that until late teens or even early twenties for the first time. And it's, they're very much um, entrenched in their, their behaviors by that point. I think it's quite difficult to sort of snap them out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel, I feel the same way too. And people have to realize that um, only international outings, whatever that might be a training camp or, or a couple of competitions, a couple of training camps together will actually give you that kind of a reality check that is, that is needed. So you might always be the national champion up until cadets, which is fine. Like there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's a pre-step, but you can only test yourself against the reality if you go different places. So I feel like Judo Australia and Maria Peckley, they are doing a good job to, to get the cadets out to these tournaments in Europe to give the kids the opportunity to have that reality check. And um, yeah, I know Ivica and Kerry are over there at the moment with the, with the cadets. And I think um, it's really important for them to, to have these kind of outings over there, the kids. Yeah, yeah. Like I, one of the best things that ever happened to me out of uh, judo was just traveling, well, seeing different parts of the world without my parents at a young age. Yeah, same thing here. And it, you know, it seemed you don't you don't quite appreciate it. You don't you know like like we said before. Sometimes you don't quite appreciate it. Oh, like I had no idea as a twelve year old. But you know, like wandering around Sweden with you know the the other judo players. Um, you know, the coach was obviously look after us, but, you know, he would always remind us he's, he's not our mother. Um, and we had to, you know, we had to make sure our stuff was tidy. We had to make sure we were on time to training and on time to get the bus and uh, if we had to go to training. And it, and it builds, you know, it's not just the judo. Obviously, the judo is like the main part of it, but it's, I think all those other little things are going to go into play when you go on those trips and you're, you are away from home. As a, as a young, young adult, um, I think it, is a very important part of the development. And uh, I've been recently asked if um, people should just go down the judo path, the international judo path, even if they might not end up with a, a medal that they, they dreamt of or hoped for. And I said, yeah, absolutely, 100%, because like you just said, the, the different countries you'll visit, the, the friendships you'll make, the, all, the, all the things that, that happen beside the judo mat, they are like things I would not miss in, in my life. Yes. Like you said, I went to Sweden, probably to the same place like Lund, where, where, always, the, where always the competition was. I was also there as a teenager. I think I, re- I remember I drove there once without a passport. We, we crossed the border with my judo, with my German judo license <laughs> because I forgot it at home and nobody wanted to turn around. And we went to so many different places. We drove to Bosnia. Some kid didn't have a passport. We still smuggled it in. We we did all the we did all the all the things that kind of stay as as stories around the judo. Yes, judo is there. Judo is the reason you do all of that. But there's so much more that comes with all these trips. On one hand, being more professional about your own career, but on the other hand, also the the, the memories you make that will stay with you forever. So I, I would always tell everyone, go for it. If the medal is not, if, if the Olympic medal is what you're after, but you might not achieve it, I think 
when you look back at it, you won't have regrets for yourself. Yeah, I think that, I think it's an excellent point, um, and I think I think part of the the other part is we would, and I, I'm assuming this would be the same for yourself, is but we would do a lot of club trips. So even if the the international, even if the uh, national um, representation and you know getting selected for those trips didn't happen, you know we still went on a lot of uh, to do a lot of tournaments as a club, and I see that as something that's as a cultural part of the judo in Australia is is lacking because it is such a hard it's a hard hard task to undertake. Um, I'm assuming when you were a club coach or even as a as a player, um, you you went to trips on went on trips as a club yeah yeah we would drive you, you know in europe mainland europe you would just drive to the netherlands you would just drive to all different kind of places um because my my coach he's uh he's from serbia we would we were the probably i think four months after the yugoslavian war ended in 1999 we drove there to to, to a fight a team tournament <laughs> like we've been in all places if we could drive there or even the friendships um, my coach realized with some of the Russian cities, uh, we flew to Moscow, we flew to St. Petersburg, we would drive different places. And it's, and it's a massive experience that just opens your eyes for other cultures, how other people live and train to appreciate actually also how good your life is. If, like you said, if you go to places like Kazakhstan, where, where people live from a couple of hundred dollars a month, and then you come back into your home environment and you see, ah. Oh, Actually, I'm pretty lucky. I should cherish that way more. I should actually be more thankful for for the opportunities I get, not having to travel hundreds of kilometers to find the next judo club or whatever. So I, I think all it's it's such an important part of growing up as a as a judoka to see all of that. And you're right; it might not be possible for every club here in Australia to just go to have the next Europe trip or the next Japan trip or whatever. But I want to encourage people here to train together more often, even if it's after these national competitions or after the national championships, or even if uh, states organize training camps and invite all the other states to come, we just need to train together more often, even, even like just bridge the distance. That's, that's, that's the job for now. I feel. Yeah. I think that would, I think it'd make a positive difference. And I want to ask you something, or your opinion on this, because when you, because you were saying about coming together, you know, you go to your local center um, in Germany, you know, the clubs would go to the center to do a session. Now, this might seem like a very dumb question, but in terms of like, if you're going to do a randori session, how would you structure a randori session? Uh, what do you mean, like uh, how it was structured or how I would structure it? Because back in the days, it was both. Okay. Go, go with both. Uh, so back in the days, it was just like, hey, hello, everyone's here. Let's warm up. Uh, and then maybe a couple of uchikomi nagekomi to begin with. And then let's go straight into it. That was what it was in the past. And obviously in a place where like an Olympic center somewhere in Germany or France, I think that's that's what it is, right? And it works for, for them because everybody is at a very high level. They all know what they've been doing. But I guess... Um, over here, you would probably have like a 15, 20 minutes technical, tactical component before it that you want to focus the whole group onto. Like you said, every, every country's judo is a little bit different and there's always things that people could pick up. And 
if I had the opportunity to design a session like that, I would always have a 15 minutes technical, tactical component to it. Given also that probably it's never a purely senior group in a training, you have all people from, from different age categories. So there might be a benefit in going over about a couple of gripping patterns again, or a specific uh, situation, right versus left or whatever it is, or, or some transitioning or something. So I think say in Europe, it's usually warm up, get into things. I think over here, it would be good if we can have a 15, 20 minutes technical component before it, but then you still need to smash out a couple, couple of randori rounds, Tachiwaza and Nevaza. So I, I don't think much changes other than just having having a technical component just before randori, I'd say. And do you have the technical components as a more high-paced component? Like as so it instead of it being sort of a slow technical development. As in, you would set sort of a, okay, your opponent's left-handed, they're going to come out uh, with a high grip, and you've got to break that grip, move, and throw. Um, would you keep the pace quite high with the technical component? Yeah, usually that's – so that's what I've I've done in the past, and that's usually what we do here over here as well because, yeah, everyone's kind of different in solving different problems because I always call them problems because, yeah, right versus left might be your problem at hand at the moment. So how do you solve this? So usually we would go and give a different couple of options to solve the situation and then for everybody to find their way to solve it and, and pick one of the options. And then, yeah, obviously it gets uh, faster and, and more real every time. And probably that it is a good preparation for Randori because in the end you just train the situations that come at you at Randori. So yeah, it will be high paced to prepare yourself to to do randori straight after it's funny like i like i said i grew up in a in a tuesday thursday are the big randori nights with obviously 10 rounds in tachiwaza and a couple four or five in nevaza and then on the other days there are a couple of randoris but not 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 as much probably two three four so we would come to probably 30 randoris a week with high level intensity with people who know what they're doing and if we can't match that we'll always have a kind of, we'll always be trailing in our development. So I think that's where we need to try to get to. And, and it might be a longer journey, but I think that should be the goal. Yeah, so my bias is towards, like I say, the reason why I asked you that is, yeah, my bias is towards just doing Randori. Because again, that was probably a similar experience to you. When we would go to squad training, it'd be a sort of like 10 minute warm up. And it would just uh, then we'd just do like either rounds of Niwaza and rounds of uh, Tachiwaza or just Tachiwaza. Oh, you know, it, it maybe a mixture of both, but it would just be that'd be it like five minute rounds. You'd do a couple, get a drink, back on, couple, you know, you'd, we, that'd be it all night. And you'd just be beating each other up. And then depending on like how the session would go, it maybe at the end, it may be some pressure training. But again, it would be very intense um, or like, you know, the winner stays on. So something just to maybe up the intensity at the end and just to add a bit of variety. But yeah, for the most part, it was just Randori. And that's, uh, for those kind of sessions, when you get so many people on the mat, I'm just like, let's just just fight. Like, <laughs> Correct, correct. If you have 50 people there, if you have 50 people there and they're all kind of uh, uh, an, an intermediate or very high level already, just go and use the bodies like make 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 the most use of, out of the partners you've got at that moment because in your individual club training it might not be that way so that's why i want to want to encourage people to come together and have 50 people on the mat regardless of which club you're from and all, all club coaches can share this like why would they not 
Like, yeah, as we as we were joking about before the uh, we started recording the conversation, to you know, go make some new friends and try and beat them up. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, I, we were in Europe in in uh, in February, March, and one of the younger girls on the squad, she she came back with a smile when we were in Poland, and she's like, "Oh, this girl tried to bash me," and then I tried to bash her. That was fun. <laughs> so I guess um, that's uh, that's the mentality we wanna we wanna instill in people. It's like you be hard and try to do your best, but when you bow off, you be as friendly as you can. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's what I want from, from the guys, that they come and train for themselves and then respect the other person to putting in the same effort. And you can't be, you can't be unhappy about another person trying to throw you because that's good for you. That's what you want. Yeah, I remember having some uh, incredible tear-ups, like just trying to you know, you know, name people. But you know, like I remember some, on some training camps, you know, there were some people and you know, we'd always go for each other and it'd just be arms and legs everywhere and smashing each other yeah. into the floor. And then you get up at the end, you'd be smiling, you'd be like, all right, see you, see you at the next session. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, super good. Like best memories, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask you about uh, was your opinions on strength and conditioning uh, because the German team, I always remembered us how physically strong they were. You know, as I said early in the conversation, I used to fight uh, Maresh, who was just like a, a little little action man. Um, and even like Ole Bischoff, I remember training with him on, on camps. And like, he just, insane how strong he was. Like, you just can't, like, so unless you like, you've felt it, you know, and you're trying to break his grip off and he just doesn't budge. And then he just rips yours off like nothing. And you just, oh, this is just going to be painful for five minutes. But obviously you want to get on with the best so you can improve and learn, right? But yeah, so the Germans are known for their physicality, right? Yeah. What's your opinion uh, on on the the importance of strength and conditioning, and maybe sort of like what kind of strength and conditioning should be incorporated into a judoka's program? Yeah. So obviously, um, two topics, like you said, they they and I, I want to say they. I think, and I said that before. I think there there were German trademarks, and they kind of washed out a little bit. So, like you said. Whenever you see a German in your draw, you think like, oh, that will be that will be at least a very, very scrappy, intense fight. And those guys are up for it. And I feel like the physicality in the German judo is a little bit less than it was. Um, but and and I, I said always, you have to be very strong to to dominate your opponent. When you get a chance on the ground, you need to finish that. And you have to be able to go for as long as it might take. And I think that were kind of the German trademarks you were talking about. Is that something you would agree with? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would love for these trademarks to be Australian in, in the future, because I feel like, yes, if you don't have as many partners to train judo with, that's not your fault. You can't change that week in, week out, but there's no excuse not to be fit, strong, and nail things that that you can just drill. So I guess I think there is an importance to have kind of trademarks. Let's try to develop them as good as we can. And that actually just answers the the second question without answering it. Yes, I think SNC is a vital part of a high-performance judo player. Not necessarily every judo player who is just recreational, trying to enjoy judo, 
the judo training itself is already kind of an SNC program for people that pick up judo right from the start. But in a high performance mindset, you probably have to train those things because like you say, then you fight a Dutch, you fight a German and you just have to be stronger than them or more resilient than them and nail your transitions and have your gripping patterns ready. So yes, it's, it's a big thing for me and every athlete I coached, I made sure that they were strong enough, that they were fit enough and then they would nail the essential parts as I sometimes call them, like your kumikata and your transitioning. So um, that's why we split also training like SNC in the morning, judo in the afternoon for most days. And I would actually say four SNC sessions a week is, is the average of what you should do. And then obviously, depending on the phase of, of the year, if you're in preparation or not, would actually determine when you train your SNC and what, what sort of focus is in that session, if it's more conditioning or is it more strength related? Yeah, I think looking back on my career, my lack of strength in comparison to the people I was fighting was definitely a, a reason for my underperformance at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can see that I can see that with different people. Whereas, like you have to have a certain strength. You don't have to be the strongest, but if you're right in the region where this is not letting you down, that's not the reason why you lose matches anymore then your actual judo can come through and you might win with your judo. But if you, if you, if the strength is the reason why you always lose matches, that's something that I consider like an easy fix. If it is monitored and acted upon, then that's something we can fix because at a certain time, people are just good at judo. But if you're not able to, to show your judo because you've been always outgripped, you've been always been dominated that's that's not going to happen so i guess yeah that's what you described like just your strength lets you down but i don't necessarily think like people that lose matches are not as good as other people just purely on their judo yeah um i've had the same conversation in terms of the men- the, the competition anxiety you know, people go to competitions and they, they they're, not, they're not actually able to relax to a point to allow the judo to to come through mm, yeah yeah so there's all these you know, all these different elements that you've got to to figure out to then actually allow your judo to be able to come to the forefront. Do you think that was a like a big challenge for you as well when you said strength was kind of an area where you thought like you could have been better? Yeah. So in hindsight, I, I stayed at eighty one under eighty one kilos for too long. I was cutting too much weight, and it didn't really give my body chance to physically develop to the point that it needed to be. I think I've got pretty good judo, and I was maybe bit big-headed but I think my judo is pretty good um I was really fit um in terms of like cardio output I I could run and run and keep going uh you know so like getting to golden score you know and being able to still stand up and that was never an issue it was just my physical strength uh especially with dieting uh, I would I, I would that would go relatively early on in the day, you know, I could get through maybe a couple of fights. Um, but then if we got the later rounds and then I had a hard fight in the later rounds, it, yeah, my arms would blow out and I just wasn't able to get the power to generate to, to throw. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's a vital part of a high performance career in, in judo, obviously, but, um, what you just said about the, the, the psychological factors is really important as well, because like you said, if you can't, 
relax and relax enough to be able to think of your judo when it's all anxiety about I'm, I'm trying not to lose here then you might never be able to win because all you try to do is not to lose so i've, I've had that discussion with different people throughout the years and the only thing that kind of is the same for everyone is everybody gets nervous everybody has a has a little bit of anxiety before they go out. So I think you just have to learn to accept it more than getting over it because I don't think there is a getting over it. And I also had a funny conversation with other people where they stopped competitive judo and people, and that's including myself, say you this kind of nervousness, the, the anxiety is, is never to be found in any other thing. So people went skydiving, whatever, but it's not the same kind of nervousness, just being in front of another person who's trying to beat you. Um, you can't replicate that feeling. So a lot of people try to chase that feeling after they don't compete anymore and just to find that you can't replicate it. So it's a, once you leave a competitive space, this kind of adrenaline rush is never coming to you in that form again, at least. So People, people keep missing it even <laughs> well before it was the thing that made them almost throw up or throw up. I think people see being nervous as a, a bad thing, as if, as if it's a, an issue. Yeah. I, I, like I'm not saying it's pleasant. I don't, I'm not saying it's a pleasant experience, but I don't think it's a, a bad experience. I, like I say, it's just part, I see it as part of the process. When I have athletes uh, a couple of days out from a competition, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling nervous. I'm like, good. Like, good, good. You... What do you think was going to happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, feel this. I feel the same. I feel exactly the same. I feel like, hey, this is good. This is... So it means you care about the outcome. Yes. Like you say, it's part of the process is learning how to utilize those nerves rather than letting those nerves get the, the better of you. I think it's another important part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah, I've, we always say it's like, um, that's Daniel Kelly, obviously, he has the same approach to it. It's like, okay, if you get nervous, that's mostly your emotions and emotions try to lie to you a little bit as well. Yeah, they play tricks on you. Emotions play tricks on you. That's it. They try to, they try to stop you from certain things. But if you understand that they, you don't always have to, to give in to what they want you to think, then you can probably channel them and, and yeah understand why why you can still do it even though your emotions want want you to stop it and i feel that's that's the right approach to it everybody will get nervous everybody will think like oh the other person on the other side of the mat is a world champion uh just stronger than me whatever that's the beauty of judo you can always find a way to win you just have to believe in it yeah everyone's beatable that's it everybody has a back that's where they need to be put on to <laughs> brilliant <laughs> Uh, I think that might be a really good place to leave it, Alex. Really enjoyed that chat. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day to, to come and talk to us and share your, your thoughts and experiences. 